7.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters. And if you are new to the show, I am speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who is one of three representatives for the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Good morning. Good morning. And I want to welcome to the show for the first time, public defender Kelly Green. I'm so glad you could join us today. Thank you for having me. For those who are looking for past episodes of the Happy Hour, you can find us on iTunes as well as Spotify and our webpage, the Montpelier Happy Hour. Captivate.fm. And we have lots of juicy, juicy conversations for you on those, those channels. Kelly, thank you for joining us today. And I would love to start just for folks who maybe aren't familiar with the criminal justice system. What is a public defender and what brought you to to the role? Like what's your passion with this with this job? So a little just a little bit about me. So um, I am uh, uh, 46 years old. I am a white middle class uh, woman and I live in Randolph, Vermont. Um, and I'm actually pretty ordinary in every way. Um, I could have grown up to do any number of uh, jobs. I might've been a music teacher. Um, I might've been a community organizer. Uh, I probably was always gonna go into some type of, of public service of some sort. Uh, I, I went to law school, uh, mostly I just wanted to go to graduate school and didn't really have um, a real plan. I might, I, might have be, I might have become a history teacher, um, but I ended up in law school and, uh, and I ended up becoming a criminal defense attorney just because I, I figured I'd be maybe an environmental law, lawyer. I went to VLS, and, um, but I was instantly taken by criminal law because because it's very obvious right away, I think to most people, I don't, maybe just to me, whatever, crime is fascinating. And like from my like, you know, upbringing and perspective, it's like something I had never, uh, it, it was just a, a world outside of my own world mm-hmm. um, and that I, could, that I could venture into. And so that's, that's, that's how I became a public defender. Most, most criminal defense in Vermont and probably elsewhere uh, is, is public defense. Most people charged with a crime um, can't afford uh, to hire an attorney. It's super expensive to hire an attorney. I was like trying to maybe write a will or something for myself recently. And I'm like, I should hire someone. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm not gonna pay someone $250 an hour to do it. Like it just seemed just like an expense I didn't wanna incur, couldn't incur. Um, so most, most defense in criminal defense in Vermont is public defense. Mm-hmm. Um, I am speaking today to you. Can I interrupt for one second? So just to like make it very explicit, that means that most people who are charged with crimes in Vermont don't have very much money. That's correct. Right? Okay. Just- they, have, they have to meet a means test before mm-hmm. they're assigned a public defender. And they also have to be charged with what we consider a serious crime to qualify for a, a public defender. You do not get a public defender for very, very low level crimes. Um, and uh, 
so I got, I got it. I, if you have a little bit about my background, I'm like, I'll be a public defender. That seems like a good job for someone like me. And I've been doing it since 2005. Um, and increasingly, I just find myself like, I can't believe where I, where I am because I have somehow managed to land in the darkest, uh, cruelest, racist system imaginable. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm like, no, I was supposed to be a, I was supposed to be a mute. I was supposed to be an elementary school music teacher. <laughs> like, how did I end up here? And it, you know, it's, it's what, well, I don't know what keeps me here is my pension, uh, maybe. Maybe I'm lying about that, but I, I, I do love, 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 love my work, my job, my clients, my colleagues, the court system. I love it. Um, but it makes going to dinner parties in my sweet little community of Randolph really hard because I'm sitting down with my neighbors talking about some like fabulous goat cheese that they just found at some, some niche farm down, you know, in Brook. And I'm just like, Wow, dealt with white supremacy all day, man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, here in Vermont, <laughs> you know, like, so I, I, increasingly, I, I, it's hard, it's hard because increasingly mm -hmm. I, I lose track of all the things that why people love Vermont and all, you know, because man, it's the underpinning is, is really, really toxic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, there's yep. so there's so much darkness and pain. So like in all of our communities, and it's mind-boggling to me how many people are able, how possible it is to not see it and how everywhere it is once we do see it. I mean, it's really just, yeah. We've designed Vermont has designed a system so that we don't have to see it. And that's what it's for. It's like, we do, Vermont does not, we do not like noise. We do not like yelling. We do not like addiction, mental illness. We have no tolerance. Uh, we don't like black people. We, we, we do not like any kind of mess. I, I had no idea. I thought we were like this, uh, you know, progressive paradise with, with, with values that are exceptional compared to the, I was living in North Carolina prior to living here. I was living in Asheville, North Carolina. But I was like, I gotta get out of Buncombe County, North Carolina. I gotta go back to Vermont. <laughs> so, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to tell people. I, I, I hate to tell, I hate to tell you. I, I hate to have to tell you friends and neighbors who I love. I love you all. Um, but you've got a completely messed up system here that's keeping the veneer on your lives, but. Well, that's one thing Emily and I talk about on the show a lot is, and I don't know that we've named it always explicitly, but recently I sent her an email about um, possible shows in the future and one thing I've been sitting with is the Vermont brand 
And I think that kind of names that veneer and how many of us actually see ourselves in that brand. And I grew up, most of my life has been spent in Vermont and I don't see myself in the brand. I, I um, want to be in it. I want to be in it. <laughs> yeah. I want to be in it. Okay. I want no. <laughs> I'm all set with what's going on around me in my, in my day job. <laughs> I just want to ride a gravel bike, man. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's what, what I'm really sitting with right now, Kelly, that you talked about is what we don't see. And I think all three of us have jobs that probably do make us see people on their, their worst days and in their worst situations. And it can feel, I don't know about both of you, but for me, sometimes it just feels like I'm underwater because the pain is so deep. And how, how do you start bringing, how, how do we start bringing these things to the surface without swamping everything else? Um, is, or why, is also... why not swamp everything else? I mean, I don't, I was in a meeting. I become more and more aware of how incredibly uncomfortable people are with making other people uncomfortable. <laughs> and I don't, that's like, just not, it doesn't make sense to me. And like, that's my own gift and curse and cultural heritage, but I don't, um, I think we need to get comfortable with making people uncomfortable. Cause right now we have a lot of people who are incredibly uncomfortable cause they're in prison and they're experiencing violence and they're hungry because other people aren't able to be uncomfortable or make each other uncomfortable. And so Kelly, will you tell us some about I quickly, I'll say, Emily, I understand what you're saying, and I completely agree. When I'm talking about not swamping everything else, I'm not talking about making people uncomfortable. I'm fine with that. It's how do we bring these things to the surface? To me, it's more of a practical thing, because if no one can get their footing on, on dry land, how do we bring other people up onto dry land? Um, so to me, it's more about how do we change these systems mm. without just ending up with something worse than when we started is more what I was thinking. Um, but yes, Kelly, sorry about that. No, to pe interrupt. please do pe people. Um, how do we do that? Oy, oy, oy. You it's hard, right? Like, so, um, well, talk to us about your clients, you know, many of the clients you see and, what, what are some of their challenges and, and barriers that they're dealing with that brought them to your, to your desk? I was trying to think about this this morning, okay? And I, I was trying to think to myself, I, I would, I, it's been a long time since I've represented a person who really didn't have a significant mental illness. It's been a long damn time since I've just had an or like an ordinary brain. I don't know what the word is you use, but just like a, a, a you know, a, it's been a long time since I've rep you know represented someone who doesn't have, isn't laboring under, coping with mental illness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, a long time. I I have done it. I've definitely, I you know, um, I've 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 had I've, I had a, I had a self defense trial in 2019 and that that client just 
was you know in the wrong place at the wrong time and um you know he wasn't suffering from many of the the things that other people suffer from but mental illness is huge it's a huge thing it's like uh it's that's a giant challenge mm -hmm. and um we gotta solve that i literally uh, gosh i don't want to exaggerate but it's like 90 percent of my clients um have uh uh mental illness and addiction and or you know and it, and it comes back and forth <sighs> and so how do you know and here's the other thing here's here's the like hopeful thing about my neighbors and their dinner parties and the goat cheese. Um, my community, I, I think I said Randolph. I love Randolph. Um, my clients are really the same people as my neighbors. And they're often, and like in my town, we have at any given time, two or three people who have significant, what I would call major mental illness. And, and they're living in my community and my community rises to the occasion and accommodates uh, those folks and loves them and takes care of them, right? It's only when someone steps out of line that we like bring down the criminal justice system. So most of my clients that I deal with every day are people who are living, you know, at first living in our communities and our communities are super good at loving those people until they step out of line and tangle with the criminal justice system. Then they disappear and we throw them away. You know, my, my neighbors, there's, <laughs> I don't want to like talk too, too specifically because I don't want to bring attention to any particular person, but you know, every town has someone that the town is is wrapping in in love and taking care of and accommodating. Mm -hmm. And like, like yeah, that's the guy, you know, with the nunchucks in the in the road. <laughs> and, and the nunchucks seem scary at first, but um, he's just doing his thing and he doesn't harm anybody. So just just like whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, every community, you know. So so, uh, but as soon as uh, as soon as someone calls the police and as soon as some, you know, a crime occurs, that person gets sucked up into the criminal justice system. And, and let me say, I'm also speaking from a, a point perspective of, you know, the phrase, like, what is the phrase? Uh, when you're a hammer, the whole world is a nail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there is a whole other system where people maybe um, get involuntarily hospitalized or whatever. And I've never understood, like some people end up in the criminal justice system and some people end up at the hospital or, you know, like, it just depends on who, who you get and who's doing the triaging. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. But I, you know, I talked to a guy all week this week, a client of mine who has been in and out of prison since 2002 for kind of low level property crimes due to his significant, I mean, really significant ADHD and his co-occurring drug addiction. This guy has been in and mostly in, but in and out of prison since 2002. He can't comply with curfews. 
he can he can stay sober for a while but then he can't so he commits a burglary and he takes somebody's lawnmower and then he tries to sell it and he goes to jail and like oh my god have you been to jail it's nothing's getting done there he's not getting he's not getting meaningful drug treatment he's not getting he's not he's not he's getting like he's not getting any mental health care that you know very minimal <laughs> um so but like, oh my God, we've tortured this guy. Like this guy has been in and out of prison. For, I can't explain to you what that means to have someone since he's, he's how old is he? 40 something, early forties. But since 2002, he's been in and out of prison for these two problems. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and we're torturing him, torturing him. <laughs> he's not getting better. Right, no, right. That's what we're cycle. doing, man. No, and I mean, all of these drug use and ADHD and depression and PTSD, like they happen across the whole population. But when you're living in poverty, the stress exacerbates it all and like makes your illness way more public, your ability to cope with the systems that you need to get care way less. And so it's not and so we just have this whole universe of how like, you know, some of us can exist with our, our neuroses and problems and childhood trauma. And some of us, like it becomes too much and we wind up in a cage. Mm -hmm. I think what I'm, I'm hearing right now is um, it's, it's almost like there's this imaginary line in the sand and on one side of the sand we tell certain stories about community and about people who need help in that community and who belongs to that community and then on the other line of the sand that same person gets an entirely different story told about them and why they're on one side versus the other and all that person has done is crossed that imaginary line in the sand um someone and, that I'm, sorry go ahead Emily um there's someone very close to me who um is very close to someone else who currently is um dealing with the criminal justice system who has a long history of mental health challenges and um cognitive impairment and as we talk about it she keeps on saying I just want I'm scared that people won't know he's a good person. Mm -hmm. Like that where he's going, no one, like I know that and I know that all of his service providers knew that, but I don't know if, I don't think on the other side of this sand, anyone's gonna know that. And what I've so appreciated, um, mostly when I hear from you on Twitter, Kelly, is what um, I, that I, I know that you're holding people's whole selves while you represent them. Um, and that's so powerful to me, like for nothing else that that person gets to have that experience of someone seeing their whole self while they're dealing with the other side of the sand. It's impossible to not do that. It, there's nothing special about me when, and this is, this is what's so hard. When I um, go to court, I walk, I, and it's like, uh, I get a notification that uh, a 22-year-old man has 
uh, killed a toddler and he's gonna be arraigned. <laughs> and I walk into the courtroom and oh my gosh, like all the state police are there. <laughs> the whole, everybody's all, the whole family of the toddler is there. They are so grief stricken and angry and grief stricken. And I walk into this, they're keeping this guy in the cell in the back. And I walk into the cell and he's sitting on the floor. Um, it is a human response. That person needs me. I'm the only person there for that person. They, he needs me right now. It's an emergency. And, and we instantly bond. Like, like that guy needs a cup of coffee and needs me to like, you know, um, hold his hand while he cries. So uh, it's a human response. I instantly bond. And then I get to know my clients. And there are days when I'm like yelling at them on the phone because I'm so aggravated and they're yelling at me on the phone and I can see how like this got crazy. But then they send me the best apology letter or we like, I don't know, it's just, there's, there's people are people and people are easy to love. That's part of being human. You connect, you can connect. We have that in, in us, it's, it's inherent in us. And I've represented some people in the state of Vermont who are infamous. Um, and the whole world is out to get them, man. But like, I just want the whole world to meet them because there's just things about them. They're, um, you know, their curly hair, um, the way that they walk down the courthouse steps and, and hold on to their grandmother when no one's looking. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have just about five minutes before the break. Um, so I just want to, what do we want to make sure, Emily and Kelly, that before we go to break, what do we need to leave listeners with right now to help them? Because, and, and I ask that in part because I'm trying to imagine who might be sitting at home going, ah, no, I don't understand this. And I can imagine there are people out there who have been hurt by others. Absolutely. And, and that might be, this conversation could be really hard for them to listen to. Absolutely. So yeah, let's, let's think about that. What do we, given that framework, what do we need to leave listeners with before we. It's very, very clear to me that grief is universal. Everyone will experience grief. Crime victims, judges, police officers, every single human, it's a human experience. <laughs> so uh, we all have this in common. That's what I would leave before the break. <laughs> um, and I think with. On the other side of the break, um, 
I think that really brings up questions of, you know, vengeance versus justice. Um, and then sort of the other side of that, which is like what actually, um, what is best for our communities? You got it. There's, there's a lot of abstract philosophy on the spectrum of vengeance versus justice, but then there's the third way, which is like evidence-based treatment um, and evidence-based practices and how profoundly difficult it is for us to move forward with that politically given that we're stuck in this paradigm of vengeance and justice. Beautifully put. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Kelly. I, I think what always stays with me when we're talking about the criminal justice system is how difficult it is, especially if someone does, whether they want vengeance or justice, we have a criminal justice system, we use justice, but what we actually have is, is, a, is a law system. Justice may not actually be part of the equation in many cases. And um, I think that that makes it hard for, for a lot of people too, whether they're looking for justice or vengeance. Um, the system may not be set up to give them either in many ways. So on that happy note, the Montpelier Happy Hour is going to take a break. So hey, uh, stay tuned. We're going to hear from some of our underwriters and be back in a moment. Thank you. Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters. And if you are just joining us, I am speaking with Emily Kornheiser, one of three representatives for Brattleboro and public defender, Kelly Green. Thanks for being with us today, Kelly. Thank you. And Before I want to remind us that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests not of the station or of anyone else who happens to be listening. And we are each here as individuals expressing our own individual opinions, not here as representatives of our employers. Thank you so much for that reminder, Emily. Anytime. Before the break, we quickly touched on the criminal justice system as, um, and Emily said it so well, vengeance versus justice versus what's best for the community. And I'm wondering for you, Kelly, how does that sort of paradigm show up in the work that you do and show up for your clients? So I can tell you that uh, every single day I come across five examples <laughs> of how the criminal justice system is not serving Vermont. It's not serving the community. It's expensive. It's not solving any problems. It's, it's not, not funded well enough. It's expensive and not funded well enough. <laughs> it's expensive and not well fun not funded well enough. Um, and yeah, right. And um, and it's it's not it's just not it's just not working. And at at a fundamental well, it's hard to say. I, I go back and forth on this. On some level, I think it doesn't reflect Vermonters' values. Mm. Um, like I said, like I said earlier, 
I, when my clients are in the community, my communities rise to the occasion and love them and, and accommodate them. But when they step out of line, they go to the criminal justice system. So in some way, I think the criminal justice system does not um, reflect Vermonters values. But um, more often, I think it does re reflect Vermonters values in that we have an unending appetite um, for white supremacy and we have an unending appetite for um, law and order and those two are related. So it's hard to know. Um, it's hard for me to know. Um, we like to think we value agriculture, but I think what we really value is, um, the cr you know, crime and punishment. I mean, and I think we think that it's people's fault if they're desperately poor. Mm -hmm. It's very um, noble to be poor, but to be desperately poor is hmm. desperately unacceptable. Yeah, and it is really, really hard, super hard for people to, uh, um, to associate someone's criminal acts with their mental health. It's really hard for us to be like, this, this is being, you know, th these two things are super intimately related. It's very hard for people to forgive um, and understand how, how something, how a person's behavior came about on a particular day um, without blaming them. So the criminal justice system in Vermont, it's not working. It doesn't solve problems. Like I gave you an example earlier of a client who since 2002 has been mostly in jail. Um, periodically in and out. And um, what's changed for him? He, his, his ADHD is still, it makes him so uncomfortable. You couldn't even talk to him because you would, you yourself would just feel so uncomfortable. And um, he's, he's poor and he has addiction that he struggles with. Criminal justice system hasn't fixed any of that for that guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and I'm still sitting with something you said before the break, Kelly, about how some people end up, depending on who's triaging the system, or the situation, I should say, some people end up in the mental health care system, for better or worse, and some people end up in the criminal justice system, again, for better or worse. And it, I think what, as someone who's sitting back listening to this, what that kind of does my head in on is if, if we're going to put someone into, say, a certain path, if we as a community say, this is how we're going to deal with X, Y, and Z, then it kind of needs to be clearer. And, and if you don't even know what, which way you're going to go, help or, or incarceration, like... I don't see how that can even make working in the system clear either. Well, and there's a third, there's a third path that people go down, which is diversion. Mm -hmm. And that it also, in my experience with clients engaged in it was also arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And I think on some level it's, um, someone goes to diversion if they're sympathetic and they go to the mental health system if they aren't scary mm. and they go into the criminal justice system if they're scary and non-sympathetic and that is like that's just I mean generally how we judge those three things is just straight implicit and explicit bias there's like not that's right 
I, I spoke to a guy this week who, who uh, he was on probation in Brattleboro and um, he, 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 I don't know what he did because I, I, I didn't, we didn't get into it, but he, 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 he went to the Brattleboro retreat and he was at the Brattleboro retreat receiving treatment. You, you got to have a serious problem if you're, if you're, if you're an inpatient admission to the, to the retreat. And he literally got out of the retreat and went to his arraignment in the criminal court for violating his probation. Whatever he did in this crisis he had violated his probation. They, he literally went from his hospital room to the criminal court. And I'm like, how is that guy? Like how do, you know. So um, we're not addressing any of that. Um, hmm. The legislature, uh, tinkers around the very, 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 very edges of the criminal justice system. And most of the time it is not to reform. <laughs> most of the time it is to become more punitive. Let's talk about the recent good time fiasco. Um, yes, for, for those who don't know, let's start with a definition. What What is good yeah. time? Yes. Okay, yeah. So let me back up a little bit more. Mm -hmm. In Vermont, when someone is convicted of a crime, they get a sentence, right? Judge hands out a sentence. And um, that person will get a minimum sentence and a maximum sentence. And then the Largely the Department of Corrections and the parole board decide if the person gets out at their minimum or if they have to serve all the way to their maximum. They, the Department of Corrections parole board decides what happens in between those dates. These sentences that we hand down are absurd. They are excessively long. They're ridiculous. They're draconian. I have and there's so much evidence, both nationally and globally, that the vast majority of crimes, one, only happen, are only committed by folks who are like under the age of 35. Yeah, right. That's and so right. there's like that piece of it, that like it's just this brains develop and then the danger to the community is over. But there's also that like, if we have some absurd belief that therapeutic things are happening in our criminal justice system, there is a limit to how long that therapeutic experience would be or how long someone needs to be removed from the situation they were in in order to stop doing those things. And there's so much evidence that that's like two years. Yeah, and when I, when, so one, one part of the job that I do is I interview jurors all the time. So a, I'll interview a jury after they're discharged, they've, they've convicted a guy of a crime and I go back to interview them about that process. And um, I'll be like, yeah, well that guy got 35 to 50 to serve. And, and they're like, what? <laughs> I can't believe it. They're like, we sat there and heard that testimony. That was 35, to, you know, 30 to 50 to serve. That happened, you know. So the legislature, uh, so we tinker, like I said, we tinker around the edges of this. So, oh, a number of, a, a number of years ago, um, we the legislature passed a law that gave everybody um, an opportunity to be released from prison six months earlier than their minimum release date. 
And this was so that people could get out on furlough for six months, prove that they're doing okay, right? Um, this, this was just a, really a way to cut sentences by six months. Um, and that was cool. And we did that for a while. And then, and then re very recently, last year, I think, the legislature decided to end that. Not clear to me why. So there's no more six month window where you could get you have you could possibly get out six months early if the Department of Corrections wanted that. So that was the first like, like what's going on? I thought we were all into criminal justice reform now. Where'd that go? And then this year, this is like a crazy story. So I guess and and Emily, you'll have to correct me, right? But I think last year the legislature passed a new law that allowed offenders to earn while they're in prison or on furlough um, time off their sentences. So for every month that they behaved and followed their case plan and complied and showed that they were that they were on board, they could cut a week off their sentences. This bill was amazing. Um, and this is actually wasn't even a brand new idea. This is something that we used to do and stopped doing and we're bringing back. Absolutely. That was something that we did a lot, many, many years ago and we brought it back and it, and it, and it served to cut sentences. So it saves money. And um, it was a, it was not what I, you know, I'll get to what I want, but it definitely reduced sentences, which was good. That was a good thing. And I and, think the other idea behind it was that it also would put the correction system in a position where they were forced to provide more programming. And there's also evidence uh, that was presented about how it actually reduces recidivism. So people are less likely to commit crimes once they get out. And I don't know how that works. I'm not an expert on that stuff, but that was the expert testimony I think that was pre presented. I think mm -hmm. that's supported by research. So, so that, that law, it was passed whenever it was passed, it went into effect January 1st. And wow, that was really great. People were earning time off their sentences. And then uh, I have, you know, I don't, I, I'm not in, I don't, I'm so busy with my I, cases. Yeah, and I'm not really exactly sure what happened, but my understanding is that a coalition of um, victims' families came forward and were very upset that the folks who had committed crimes that caused these families excruciating pain were not going to be getting the sentences that they were promised, that the victims were promised. Mm -hmm. And um, which for me is such a misunderstanding of the way this is supposed to work yeah and that the and we do we also do a terrible job of victim service and treatment and um communication and remedy and you know even our i think our restorative justice system at its very best doesn't do that part very well um but it's not it's a both experiences, the experience of the victim and the experience of the perpetrator are relationships to the state. They are not relationships to each other. It is not a promise between the person who is incarcerated and the person who is a victim that 
they are not supposed to, they are not in relationship with each other in this system. Both are in relationship with the state. And there are never official promises made to the victim by the state in these cases ever. But victims felt that they had an, they had understood a promise that was now being broken. Um, yeah, so the legislature decided just in the last month, let's say, um, to take back that program of earning time off your sentence for a certain category of crimes, big, terrible crimes, murder. I don't, I can't remember the list, but it's always the same. It's like murder, kidnapping, whatever, you know, all these bad crimes. And so, um, so now- but most of the people who are in for long sentences are there for that crime. So it's, it's almost, it's a little bit like, so it sounds as if this reform, this, um, reform change or reduction in the reform or the closing of the, it sounds like it's closing a loophole for just a very specific set of people, but in fact, it's almost everyone because the folks who the original law applied to were mostly in that category. For the community, meaning all of Vermont to see benefit from this, from the good time policy practice. Um, it really does need to apply to people serving the longest sentences. So if you, and I, you know, I, I'm really interested in saving money. That is a big, like, I would like to, I would like to us to be spending money differently. I would like to, I would like to prevent crime, <laughs> right? If I, if I had my choices as to how I would spend our money, I would like to spend it on housing, education, um, and mental health care. Right, so to, so I so it's like for this to really save us money, so that we can redirect it and prevent crime, and to have a healthy world, um, you need to apply this type of program to people serving the longest longest sentence, and also the people who could, the people you know, people who commit a homicide have the some of the lowest recidivism rates of anybody, and so I happen to have the pleasure of knowing all of these old, they're old now, right? Like there's a lot of people who committed a homicide in 1990, they're still in prison. They're very different now that they are 65 and they've been in prison um, all this time than they were when they were 22 and uh, high on cocaine and desperate and killed someone. They're just very different. They're very expensive for, for starters. Their healthcare is expensive and they're just not, they're, they're slower and they're frail, super frail. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so um, it, it was really hard to, to give these people this credit right, in, on January 1st, and then at the end of April, oh, we took it back. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be the attorney who was in my office on call to answer phone calls from, from people when that went, happened. And I, I've spent a few days with people who thought that they could cut time off their sentences. It was really, 
really one of the cruelest things I've seen happen in a while. So Emily, as a, as a lawmaker, you know, as you're listening to, to Kelly, what are you sitting with right now? I'm so that passed on a voice vote. It wasn't a roll call. Mm. Um, and a few of us voted against it in the roll call. Um, but mostly it was something that hadn't, you know, we, we pass a lot of laws. Mm-hmm. And um, it's only when they get contentious that people do their own research to figure out where they need to, you know, where they want to be, because otherwise you trust the committee of jurisdiction. Right. Um, because Fair enough. Well, I can't learn everything about ag policy or transportation policy. Those are my two committees where I'm like, I have no idea. And occasionally I'll ask someone who knows, but mostly I just trust that you all are taking care of the roads. Um, And for me, it's when I, when I see an issue like that where so few of my colleagues have their like feelers up on it, it says to me that people haven't had these opportunities right here Mm -hmm. Um, or the opportunities that I've had in my work or my life in this community um, or haven't, you know, visited prisons and seen the geriatric prisoners. or even understand that we can't use Medicaid to pay for healthcare for people in prison. That's just state dollars. Um, and so, and also, you know, I think we all have really different tolerances for looking a victim right in the face and saying, I'm really sorry, but I think this is what's best for Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry about your pain too. And the fact that we can't, like, it's really, it's really hard to hold these like multiple realities and multiple people's pains and um, craft a path forward from there. Um, and we are constantly moving between these two extremes of being driven like just by feeling and idiom even and like, to evidence-based and it um there doesn't seem to be rhyme or reason for when we stick with one or the other and i i think that's true for me as well at this point um it's not i don't have staff or time to dig into the evidence on every single issue if i had staff i would certainly task them with digging into the evidence on every single issue and so i don't know if you know we don't, as a body, we don't all haven't had the opportunity to deeply explore what is wrong in our criminal justice system and what can be changed. And we have talked a lot about justice reinvestment, um, which this is not. Um, and so it's really, it's, yeah, it's, conf- I mean, it's confusing to me, the whole thing. It's confusing. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Emily. Yeah. We and have... I, you know, I want to say, like, I didn't, 
I didn't make a huge loud fuss. I voted against it because I found out about it too late to make mm -hmm. a fuss that would have mattered on the policy. Um, and I, um, I tend to only make a fuss when I think it will change the outcome. Um, but sometimes I think it's worth making a fuss because the people who are witnessing it would have appreciated that fuss being made. So mm -hmm. I'm sorry for that, Kelly. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We have only scratched the surface. And now we're all crying. And now we're all crying. Yes. Lovely. Yeah. Yes. Fan the, fan the face. Uh, we have just about five minutes before we, we need to, to leave. And I know Emily needs to get to a meeting. So I want to turn to Kelly and, and just say for you, we have a lot of strings hanging out here now that this conversation has, has led us to. What do you feel for Vermont, for your clients, if you could change anything in the system, what for you would be the way forward? It's very, very, very clear, crystal clear to me what the what I would like the legislature to do, what I'd like people to support. You absolutely have to cut sentences. You have to lower sentences. You have to bank that money you saved and spend it wisely to prevent crime. Thank you. Very simple. Yep. I, I'm, I'm just, after our deep conversation, I'm sitting with like, <laughs> yep, that, that was clear. <laughs> and, um, and, and I would say to Emily, walk through life uh, as you do, understanding that grief is universal. You understand that already. Get your colleagues to all understand that they already understand that. It's just Everyone. a point to, rem to remember. Everybody understands that. It's a point to remember. Yeah, right. Perhaps what we need to understand better is that um, grief never stays behind closed doors, and so it's something we bring to a lot of the choices we make. And can and can and it can be a strength too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's what. I think it's some of what gives you your power in the courtroom, right, Kelly? I think so. <laughs> well, thank you, Kelly Green, public defender in Vermont. Thank you, Emily Kornheiser, representative in Vermont. And thank you to everyone who tuned in today. As you can tell, we just scratched the surface, so I suspect we will be having more conversations around this topic in the future. The Montpelier Happy Hour can be heard every Friday at 2 p.m. on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, as well as Emily's YouTube channel and BCTV, and the Montpelier Happy Hour Facebook page as well. You can find us. I want to, before we leave, I want to raise a toast because we do like to end with a toast and say thank you to you, Kelly, for all the work that you are doing, all the thought you are bringing and all the heart you are bringing to your job. And for everyone out there who's been touched by the criminal justice system or by crime, we just wanna say we, we hear your pain and um, we are sorry it is out there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.